but uh, so I grew up raised in Denver. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. My brother's a pastor. I have a sister who's a minister as well, pastor. So I grew up in that tradition, the Baptist tradition. So my father was very well known across the country, Reverend Dr. Asen Phillips. And uh, I started preaching, Ken, when I was five years old. Mm. I wanted to pr start when I was four, but my mother was very smart. She didn't want her baby son to be a preacher. She said, well, give him a year if he still wants to do that. Thought it would, I would let it pass, but I just, you know, a year later, going to kindergarten, I said, mom, I still want to be a preacher. So I was a boy preacher. And so my first church, I was 16 years old and uh, I was actually in high school still and pastoring the church, playing football, so, so, that kind of thing. Let's stay on this point for a second. Now, how are you a preacher at four and five years old? I, now, I guess it ain't hard when everybody in the family there you is go, preaching that, that's and, it. and they looking at you and you just mimicking a lot that's, of what you see, right? Exactly right. What I would do, you know, we didn't have daycare. I was, I was born in the sixties. So there was no such thing as daycare. We had a babysitter, right? And the babysitter's house, I would start, I would, we would have, uh, play church and I would be the preacher and I'd put water on my face and <laughs> run around there. Yeah. I was, and I always remember the most thing I remember about that kid is I always remember to take an offering at five years <laughs> old. <laughs> was you getting any? Well, I was getting, they, well, I was, they'd bring them quarters and nickels. I had a deacon getting that money. Yeah. As a little kid, I've been like that for a long time. So, uh, and I just grew up in the church tradition, you know, well, we, people don't grow up like that anymore. When I was a kid, everything was right in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So I grew up that way. So because of how I grew up, it was just natural for me to become a preacher. If you grow up on a farm, you're going to become a farmer. If you grow up in a, in a neighborhood of preachers, that's what you're going to become. This is Strategic Moves with Tim Dow. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for coming in to another episode of Strategic Moves. I'm your host, Ken Dow. This is a place where I bring art, culture, business, and politics all together. And today... I have a good friend of mine who decided to stop in and he's going to be stopping in from time to time. And so everybody I want to introduce none other than pastor Aaron Phillips. How you doing today? sir? I'm doing fantastic. My dear friend and brother, brother Ken Dow. Thank you for having me be a part of strategic moves. I'm glad to be here today. So Phillips, tell us uh, for people who don't know who pastor Aaron Phillips is. Who is you, man? Where you come from? Where you, did you grow up in Cleveland? Are you from here? What's your, how you get here, man? Yeah, that's a great question. No, I'm not from Cleveland. I'm not born and raised in Cleveland. I'm born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and uh, I'm always a Bronco fan. I'm a huge John Elway fan until these last antics of John Elway. But I grew up raised in Denver. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. My brother's a pastor. I have a sister who's a minister as well, pastor. So I grew up in that tradition, the Baptist tradition. So my father was very well known across the country, Reverend Dr. Asen Phillips. And uh, I started preaching, Ken, when I was five years old. Mm. I wanted to pr start when I was four, but my mother was very smart. She didn't want her baby son to be a preacher. She said, well, give him a year. If he still wants to do that, thought it would, I would let it pass. But I just, you know, a year later, going to kindergarten, I said, mom, I still want to be a preacher. So I was a boy preacher. And so uh, my first church, I was 16 years old and uh, I was actually in high school still and pastoring the church, playing football, so, so that kind of thing. Let's stay on this point for a second. Now, how are you a preacher at four and five years old? I, now, I guess it ain't hard when everybody in the family there you is go, preaching that, that's and, it. and they looking at you and you just mimicking a lot that's, of what you see, right? Exactly right. What I would do, you know, we didn't have daycare. I was, I was born in the sixties. So there was no such thing as daycare. We had a babysitter, right? The babysitter's house. I would start, I would, we would have, uh, play church and I would be the preacher 
and I'd put water on my face and <laughs> run around there. Yeah, I was, and I always remember the most thing I remember about that kid is I always remember to take an offering at five years <laughs> old. <laughs> was you getting any? Offering? I was getting. They, I was, they'd bring them quarters and nickels. I had a deacon getting that money. Yeah, as a little kid, I've been like that for a long time. So, uh, and I just grew up in the church tradition. You know, well, we people don't grow up like that anymore. When I was a kid, everything was right in the neighborhood. So I grew up that way. So because of how I grew up, it was just natural for me to become a preacher. If you grow up on a farm, you're going to become a farmer. If you grow up in a, in a neighborhood of preachers, that's what you're going to become. So, so tell me about growing up in Denver. I, I never been to Denver. So all I think about is one, they call it the mile high. So I guess yes. it's up in the mountains really high. I know it looked like it's cold as heck out there. You know, there's a bunch of snow and yes. being up in the mountains. So tell me what was it like for a black families? And at first of all, let's tell me about your childhood growing up in there, because you mentioned you went and played football and that, and that had to be interesting as a child preacher dealing with all the temptations of high school and growing up. Well, you know, for me, what I call my normal would be very different than Cleveland. And I didn't realize how different it was until I moved to Cleveland. But it was, you know, once we, once I figured out, you know, there was other folks other than black folks in the world and that we were the minority in Colorado because we were the super minority. You had to really interact with white folks. And that's a skill that I learned and I didn't really realize I was learning. So I was, uh, I had one of my best friends was a white guy and a Mexican guy be in high school. So we always were interacting with the white community to get something done very much like in Cleveland, when Carl Stokes were, was elected, you know, it took white folks to get that to happen. So if the black community needed something to happen, we always had to partner with white folks because there wasn't enough of us. And that's this way. And I, for me, that was just a natural thing. So when we moved, we matriculated, we were in the neighborhood in Denver, then we matriculated out to Aurora in the suburbs. So the high school that I went to was a newly built high school and I was a third graduating class. There was mostly white people there. So I got my, most of my teachers at that time were white. So I was able to really interact even in, in high school, Ken, I was the first black president of my high school class. So it was really, but, but there was all white folks there. So, you know, I even, I grew up with white folks. So it's really easy for me to deal with them. So it was living in a dichotomy because the church was in the black community. And so I would go to church in the hood with, and all my friends had a group of friends, even though I lived in the suburbs that I would drive to the hood to go see them. But I was also had a group of white boy friends I'd get in the, in the van and do my white boy thing with them. So I knew about, you know, ZZ Top and those kind of things, as well as the Commodores all the same time. So it was really a very, a very multicultural experience, but I didn't know I was getting at the time. But when I came to Cleveland, I, I didn't realize what, how segregated our uh, community, our, our country really is. Because in Colorado, there was, there was absolutely racism, but it really was under, underhanded because you didn't really have a whole lot of black folks. Right. But when you come to Cleveland, you see there are, there's a clear distinction between the black community and the white community and where you're, where the lines are to be drawn. I didn't know about no boundaries. We would just go everywhere because that's how you grew up in Colorado. There was no such thing as, you know, people didn't ask me, you know, what high school I went to and you know, what name they didn't, that wasn't, those wasn't the kind of questions that you get in Cleveland. 
You didn't I mean, get that kind yeah, of you get that. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's, it's a big deal. I didn't realize it. You know, they said, what high school did you go to? What high school? You mean what college I went to? No, what high school did you go to, bro? And I was like, wow. It was, or what neighborhood you grew up in. Being, right. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. And it, it took me, it took me a minute to understand the, how rich the history is in the difference between living in the, in the East coast old city and living in the Rocky mountain new kind of environment. So tell me about your dad's church and growing up. Was it a big church you guys had? Big church, Mount Gilead Baptist Church. He was there for like 40 years and my brother took over and he had one of the largest congregations. We had like 25, well, none, we had 2,500 people in our church. So that was just a, that's just the way it was. Our church was always moving, very engaged. My father knew, you know, he helped get the first black mayor elected in, in the Denver, Colorado, Wellington Webb. And it's very much like Carl Stokes because most of the city was white. So, and Wellington Webb became a very huge figure in the Democrat National Democratic Party, him and his wife. So what, what drove you here to Cleveland? Well, I was pastoring in the church in Wyoming. My father, because that re they worked in regions and Wyoming is, is contiguous to Colorado. So I went to, he had me go to pastor a church. I was 18 years old. I said, well, okay. I really had a longing to be around black people. I mean, a, a big group of black folks. So. I put on my list, I had three lists. I wanted to come to Cleveland, Chicago, or DC. And I figured whichever would hire me first as a pastor or as a lawyer, that's the city I was meant to be go to. I put, I applied for multiple jobs. One of those jobs was a Cuyahoga County prosecutor and uh, Stephanie Chubb Jones had just became the Cuyahoga County prosecutor. She was looking for young black men to hire. I didn't even know how important who that role was. I didn't know her. But uh, she hired me. I came out here and ended up getting the job and not the church. And uh, it was one of the best things I got to meet her. She was terrific. And, and lo and behold, she just happened to know my father as well. And Reverend Cavanis. So Reverend Cavanis, when well, my father and Reverend Cavanis are contemporaries, they were very, very good friends. Matter of fact, when, when I got the position in Cleveland, my father called Reverend Cavanis and said, okay, I'm sending my son there and I need you to take care of my son. And Reverend Cavanis has been doing that ever since. And so. It's in my father was just that tight. Gotcha. And so he became my father here in Cleveland and he's been, it was looking out for me a time. So what year was that when you came here? 1998, I came in 1998. I can't believe it's almost been it's almost 20 years now. And I really have grown to love the city of Cleveland. And it took me a long time to get used to it because it's such a closed city. And see, when you come from Colorado, nobody, everybody comes from different places. Really? So, oh yeah. I mean, there's no, the mayor currently right now of Colorado, he was, he, he wasn't born and raised there. Hardly anybody is born and raised and stays in Colorado. This is not how it goes there. Very open city, a very open state for that matter. So I had to get, adjust myself to that because in uh, Ohio, back in the Eastern states period, it's very close. You got to really know you have to have good roots to really make it and you got to connect with the right people. It took me a minute to figure that out. So what was, you could say was something that what they do in Colorado that, you know, when they got to Cleveland, they don't do that up here. I will tell you two things. One of them was, uh, which really amazed me as a preacher, they didn't have a lot of women preachers in Cleveland, but in Colorado, my father back in the seventies had a woman preacher and my my mother, you know, spoke like a preacher. So it was no big deal to have a woman preach. When I came here in the nineties, they were still talking about women couldn't preach, right. which was amazing to me. I couldn't believe it. I said, Are you guys, I thought they were kidding. Right. Really? I mean, I actually would get in arguments with guys about the, where the women could preach. And so when we started our church, 
You know, of course I had a woman preaching. People didn't like it back then. But now, today, that has certainly changed. Right. <laughs> Every church has a woman preacher in it now, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Silo Baptist Church has a woman pastor, for example. <laughs> so, but back then, I was like, oh, that didn't happen. So th that was really a very, very different. Also, one of the huge things in Colorado in this different people cross party lines in Colorado a lot. So you could, there's a, there's a huge independence kind of a spirit there. So you can vote for a Republican as well as a Democrat was no big deal in Colorado because it was really the, the parties didn't really make a big difference like that. I think Trump has changed that now, even in Colorado, but did you said, but here you, you know, you were either a Democrat or you was a, are you a Republican? There's not a lot of, you know, back and forth of that. So that's, I think those are two big differences. So your time at the prosecutor's office, man, uh, you came up across some troubles. Do you want to elaborate a little bit about what happened, man? I know that's part of your testimony of sure. who you are today and whatnot. So you want to, let's talk a little. Well, you know, I never run from my story. It keeps me humble. Uh, and I tell you what, you got to bring you, brings you to something like that. So my mistake was I had a drug problem. I had a cocaine problem. And I didn't use crack and I never to tell people crack and cocaine is it's the same thing, but it's not the same thing. Uh, but then when you use cocaine, you can actually go to work on cocaine and be just fine. And just tell everybody you always got an allergy. Well, you, you can't get over that. I said, man, these allergies just killing me. I'm going to know, always blowing my nose. But I was very, very successful. I never missed a day of work or anything like that. And just so happened one of the people that I got high with, got in some trouble. And they told the police about, they knew a prosecutor. And of course the police knew who I was because I was working cases. So uh, then they set me up. I was high in my private office and uh, I came to work and uh, they had all this evidence against me. They, I came to work that day thinking everything was cool and really was crazy. I was just on court TV. I've been on some court TV twice and won my cases. And so I just was on court, court TV like a week ahead of time. And then the following week I was on court TV again, being arrested from the wow. prosecutor's office. They walked me out in handcuffs. there, very embarrassing. And it's just, it's horrible. I was so stupid, but I got disbarred because I went to jail. Thank God for Reverend Kavnis and the pastors of this so community. Let's go back a little bit there. So you said they pulled you out in handcuffs. Then they put me out in handcuffs. Uh, they charged me with bribery and cocaine possession. And mm. I knew a lot of secrets from that administration and stuff. And so I was getting ready to go on a, you know, I was just going to say, well, we you all know, Brown, you're going down like, you know, I'm going down. They're all going down. This is like this. This is bigger than Nino. This bigger than Aaron Phillips. I know that's right. So I was getting ready to blast everybody. you thought about And I said, I, so I told Reverend Kavanaugh, I said, Reverend, because he, he said, Reverend, I'm going to have you, you're back to the Reverend Kavanaugh. I'm going to have a press conference. I'm going to put everybody on blast. And he said, oh, okay, that sounds good. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, you know, I'm not the only one. He said, uh-huh. I said, well, let me ask you one question, Phillips. I said, what's that, Reverend? He said, what are you going to do about that cocaine that they found in the briefcase? I said, whoa, well, <laughs> they know my plan. That wasn't planned. That was your cocaine. Well, yes, it was. So, well, how much can you get on that? He said, I get five years just on that. He said, well, I think you should be rethinking what you're talking about. Buddy. Exactly. I said, yeah, Reverend, you got a good point. All right. So he said, now, listen, if you just plead guilty, Reverend committed to me to this to me. He said, if you take the responsibility, take your little, whatever they're going to do. I'll make sure I'm right there for you. When it's time for you to come home. I ain't going to leave you. And I, and he kept his promise, brother. It's time for you to. 
I did seven months, felt like 70 years, right? <laughs> and I tell what I tell people, it's real time. Hey, you ain't done nothing. <laughs> I, I, I got arrested on a parking ticket. Hey, man, they put me in that joint for, I was there all of, I don't even think I did 24 hours in that joint, <laughs> man. But like you said, it felt like I did 10 months walking yes, out that yes, joint. Sir, oh, yes, sir. Oh, my God. It is horrible, you man. It's horrible. horrible. Something you don't want to ever go back oh, to. Oh, my God. I'll tell you that. Anybody take your liberties from you, man. It's, it, you can't it's, make no calls, can't do no, nothing. I mean, I stayed up and stood up the whole, because everything, <laughs> I was looking behind me like right. where I was sitting. I was like, Oh no, I, I, I stayed up and stood up right by the door of the cage to let me out the whole time, waiting to get the heck up out of here. Absolutely. I couldn't believe it. I was going to be in protective custody because I was a prosecutor mm. and uh, that was just a fancy way of saying solitary confinement, really. So that's basically what they do. They just yeah. put you in solitary. solitary. Say this for your own good, own protection. So you locked up most of the whole day. Most of the whole day. And then when I, when you get to the camp to Mary, there was a whole wing of people in PC. So then you got more freedom. So I actually got some TV and stuff and I had my own, I could walk in and out and much, but there was other people who other, there was a sheriff there, another a lawyer from Montgomery County, their lawyer, another prosecutor there. So there was people there like me, but I was really survived because I was helping. I got protection. I was helping this guy with his case and he protected me and thank God uh, I didn't have to do anything, but help him with his case. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, you to the lab, I'm I, I came out of Maine. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Carrie Twisted. Came out full man. Still, thank God for that, man. And, oh, was, and uh, he let me out seven months later. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I did probation and I've been to AA. I got my five-year thing. I was clean. No alcohol, no drugs, nothing for five straight years. I'd never did anything like that. And uh, then I realized... Ken, that I really need to get back in the church. Mm -hmm. And my real, my biggest mistake was not just going against Marsh and Stephanie Tubbs Jones, but really that I abandoned my calling of being a preacher and what God called me to do. Mm. And uh, so I promised the Lord, I said, okay, I'm going to obey you, God. Because you came up here originally to do that. To do that. You got caught up into the legal stuff. Right. And, and being a prosecutor and everything. Then you got caught up in the Cleveland highlight. Yep. Cause I imagine Cleveland back then in the ninth era there, it was jumping around. Oh man, flats was hot. Uh, flats was hot and everything else. So, yeah. and, and so during that, you must've did step away from the. I did. I stepped away from the church and my calling. And so I, I promised the Lord, you know, in prison, I said, oh, Lord, I surrender. And I did, I never looked back. So we started a church. I can't believe it. This is 18 years later that we started the church and we're doing fantastic. And what's really crazy that the very people who put me in prison now I work with to help them get elected. I got stories to say. Yeah. I, I know elected officials when it was down on my end, I went to the ask for help and they said they couldn't help me. We talking high elected officials. They turned it back. But then a year and a half, two years later, where they done forgot, they, you asked them for something. Right. They come around, I want to pay you to right. work on my campaign right. to get exactly. elected. Exactly. And I was like, well, you want me to help you keep your job. Right. I need to help you maintain your job. Right. But when I needed a job, right. it was not there for me. Right. And so I can totally understand. So that's why I got this kind of weird way I look at elected officials now myself these days. So it's, it's, it's really, you know, it, it's. You know, I, I tell the, I, I tell this to people all the time. 
you know, the street code, the reason why we can't win against them is because they're, they believe their code better than we believe in ours. Guys on the street. Now the, the younger guys are getting a little softer. And now I would say, because they spilling and telling on everything they do and they'll go in there and tell on the first person they see. You know, once you right. put them in there, don't give them a Coke after an hour. They done died in that piece. <laughs> they, they done tell on everybody. But street code used to be that you didn't do that. Right. And and they were tight lipped. And so they right. were more closer together. That's why you said, how can you can't break up these gangs? How come you can't? Because they felt it was a family. Right. Elected officials say they are family and they want to take care. But they really, in my opinion, some of them, I ain't going to say all of them, but some of them can be a little selfish and some of them only think about themselves, man. Right. And, and you know what? And that's why I have so much regard for Stephanie Tubbs Jones, Marsha Fudge, Lou Stokes had tradition because they never made it about them. And that's what was different. And I had to learn that the very hard way. And I will tell you after I came home from prison and started doing my thing, I apologized to Stephanie mm. directly before. And I'm so glad I did that before she passed. And uh, she accepted me back and then I, and I, I apologized to Marcia Fudge and uh, became, and because of the people, the character of who they are, they accepted me, forgave me and embraced me. And that just shows the character. So when people ask me why I'm so loyal to us, because I mean, that's us. I said, because these are the people who have been standing by me in my worst of times. So I'm going to be loyal to them. And that's just the way it's going to be. These have their real character. They're not just politicians. They were servant leaders of the people. They always have the people's best interests at heart. And that's what's missing among many of people who are elected off. There's a wing of us and we're, and, we're, and Chantel is of that brand and breed. That's why we love Chantel the way we do. Chantel, I should say, I'm sorry. Congresswoman Brown now is just as loyal and committed to the people the way her predecessors were. And that's why I support because there's a wing of those folks who are like that. And we're out here. And that's why I really, man, you don't know, but I don't, I don't tell you enough, Ken, how much I appreciate you because you have really helped me to understand how things are supposed to go. And you have store and the stories you have testimonies you share with me. I said, man, I didn't know. Same kind of stuff, not the exact thing, but same kind of stuff that you've gone through. I've been through, so no wonder we can really, you understand what I'm he's talking about or what we're doing. And it really has been helpful because it's not a lot of people like that in our city anymore. No, no, so it, that's the problem. It, it's changing. I think the way everything is, we, we're at a, a crucial point where everything is changing. Yeah. We can kind of move on and go from there. I'm really glad to know that you've overcome that addiction. Yes. It, it's a serious thing. Yes. Everybody either knows someone or has somebody addicted, especially the crack or cocaine, which was the drug of choice back in those days. Yes. Now things synthetic drugs and stuff. So really glad that you got over that part. Now you said that Reverend Cavaness said he was going to leave. Was he there to pick you up? Oh man. I'll tell you, he was, he would call me. In jail, I could call him. I could call him from jail, and he'd pick up. He'd come see me, literally in the county jail. He would come and just, just a huge encourager. My father stayed here, stayed in Cleveland for like six weeks because they kept on saying they were going to take me, bring me home. He wanted to be here, 
went out, but he couldn't, he couldn't keep that up. It wasn't sustainable, but he stayed as long as he could. And uh, Reverend picked up the slack for him and they let me out. Reverend was right there. He did, he kept his word and uh, he was, he's been with me ever since to tell you the truth. And I, that was most over 20 years ago by now, no, about 18 years ago now. Good, man. I'm glad to hear that things are seem to be working better for you. You've seen the churches. Yes. And now these organizations, the church organization that you're proud of, you have started the clergy closure. Cleveland Clergy Coalition. The idea was that because we have so many clergy organizations in the black communities, particularly. And I wanted to, I really just started off, Ken, I was just trying to find purpose when I came home and, okay. uh, and I didn't have anything to do. So I would go to these clergy meetings because they were in the daytime. You know, one was on Tuesday, one was on Wednesday. Another, they would have all this stuff going. I was at everything. Pastors was having events. I would go. You know, I, I used to go to them. I, I remember when I yeah. was the chairman of the United Pastors, and I used to go and uh, I used to go there, and I used to call my wife from there because I wasn't going to church on Sunday as much as I should. I used to, but I would go there because I was going there for fudge. You right. know, she might, you know, you need to go to these pastor meetings, see right. what's going on, represent. So I would go to those meetings and I would call my wife from there and be like, man, you just missed it, man. Mac Mickle preached it. Blood off today, yes, man. Yes. I, you need to be coming to these meetings. Won't you come here on your lunch? Right. Back we ain't got to go on Sundays because I mean, they do it up over here. You get what you want and you can right. get up out of here, right. you know? So he was doing a great job. So I understand why you would do that. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a, a good, very, very encouraging. Yeah. And you know, the one met at Tuesday in the morning, another one Tuesday afternoon. And so I would right. do that all day, all, all day. day, Tuesday, all, all day, Tuesday. That was right. my day. And they were feeding you in every one of those meetings. It was just a, it's a great, right. and it's a tradition of the clergy organizations in our culture in Cleveland, that if you don't, if you're not from Cleveland, you don't understand it. Right. And so I was really, and so I've just made a connection. I was just going, so people, I would know things about every group and I've made, built relationships. So I said, you know what? We need to figure out a way for all of us to come together under one umbrella without anybody being ashamed of having to lose their own identity. Correct. So we started the Cleveland Clergy Coalition. So we would come together on big things. Like when it came to uh, voting for people or issues that would come up in the day, you know, with the Tamir Rice issue, we were out there for the, when they, with that shooting, when the 137 shots, we came together, brought the community together. So we were doing big things and we actually got clergy members. I hate to say it, to actually get along with each other. Oh, that's <laughs> and, interesting. and that's a huge thing because there was a lot of division there. So we were able to bring people together and it's been working very well. That's cool. The part I want to talk to you about, do you believe that the church lost a little bit of the spiritual battle that is out here in our community? Well, you know, I think this is an area that a lot of pastors don't want to talk about, but I would just be candid with you. Yeah, we lost. The church is probably won't be the same mm -hmm. uh, ever again. It's going to take a long time if it's ever to get to where it was because we were already doing bad. That's the thing. Pre-COVID, we were already doing bad, you know, so people were, there was less folks going to church than ever before. Pre-COVID, people that, you know, we had lost a lot of credibility in, in the community pre-COVID and the church hasn't, wasn't really being engaged and util, utilized the way it should be pre-COVID. When then COVID comes, then you really have a big problem because we were already on the verge of being irrelevant. Right. And now that, you know, you can't even gather in the place, you got to gum, you know, that really made it. And even in, in the, and the, what was really happening pre COVID 
churches like mine, especially like after the, uh, the crisis of the last real estate crisis that we had here in Cleveland, but we were, our church was really growing, growing, but then the economy gotten so bad. People stopped going, come to church, start, people left town. So we, we were facing some crises anyway. Mm -hmm. Then we have, you put COVID, add COVID to that. It just made things even worse. So now even with the, even the larger churches was having the same problem that smaller churches was having because of COVID. When COVID came, it kind of was a great equalizer. There was no such thing as a mega church mm. because we all have the same problem. We, nobody could gather. So you may have a big old building, but if you have nobody in it, you're just as good and you're just the same as Aaron Phillips with his small building with nobody in it. We both got just a building with empty seats. That's bad. So if you had a way to, to survive, then you could be able to make it. Now, for example, Reverend Kaplan's church, Greater Abyssinia was a, is an old school church. Correct. I mean, so they've been established for years. So when COVID came, people had no problem mailing in their money, finding Reverend Kaplan's on YouTube and on their Facebook. Cause that was, that's what they do. They were going to do that no matter what. And, and he's one of the churches and I know others, so we're one of them who actually finances increased. But if you didn't have an already established plan like that, then you're going to have a problem. And, and we have some churches and, and for Reverend Cap, for a church like Reverend Cap, that their building is paid for. So they have to worry about no mortgage overhead. But if you are just bought a church and you got a new mortgage and you have nobody coming and you don't know where your money's coming, you're going to have a problem. We have several cut churches across the country who churches that we call, we say they overbuilt. They, they lost their buildings, lost their mortgages, all kinds of things. So we've seen that. It's, that's, so we don't know what it's going to look like. The National Baptist Convention, for example, that would meet every year, September, the same time, and all the Baptist people across the country would come to one location. Hasn't met in four years. So what is, what is that? You know, and so there's nothing, there's, there's no such thing as a National Baptist Convention right now. So it's really, it's really, things have changed. They have the, we're hoping they are evolving to something that we can get back to or something better, but it, it adjusted, it adjusted my church and my ministry it was very young. We, we had just started doing Facebook Kim pre COVID. It wasn't no big deal. Somebody had their phone. They hold me and they wouldn't, they would only do it when I was preaching. And then that was it. We didn't, I didn't produce it. I didn't care nothing mm -hmm. about it, but now. I have a whole camera crew. That's the whole thing. Oh, that's the whole thing. We invest in that. We had a, actually, that's in our budget to, so, so we can continue to be able to broadcast and pe have people come and visit. We actually have people join the church on social media. Craziest thing. So it's really, it has changed a lot. I think what has helped us is we stayed engaged with the community. But if all of your focus was only just having church on Sundays and that was it. You're not going to make it. So what about the spiritual battle? I think we have a huge spiritual divide right now in the, especially in the black community. I don't know. You watched that series about the black church that they did. PBS did that. I saw it going around. I didn't get it. Yeah. Louis Gates, he, they talked about it. They even said that now the black church is black lives matter. That's how much there's a spiritual divide, which I totally disagree with. Wow. So I think that we have to. And I, you know, and that's funny that you said it because I know even in the work that I'm doing in the community, I've noticed that 
I need to be more focused on us being spiritual people, healthy people first. Then we can talk about getting our economic self together, our social self together, our political self together, because there is a huge void in the black community now that has, you have never seen before the, the disconnect of being spiritual with who we are as a people. That's why you see the black on black killing that you see that when you, and see people abandoning their family, like you never seen that before because there's a disconnect with who we are as spiritual beings. And uh, it was a time, you know, I'm not sure if you can go, there was a time you could go to the club in the, and it's a black club and you can go in there and say, God is good. And everybody would say all the time, all the time. I don't know if you could do that now. If you go to the club, so you go in there and put on lights and God is good. People may look at what, what are you talking about? Not if Drake or baby, <laughs> wait till they take the baby off before you put that up. Right. Well, things shot. have really, things have, yeah, I think we have. And, and I know that's not going to be popular. My clergy friends will strongly so, so, disagree with me. So, but but it, I'm sure they will. They'll strongly disagree with you. But, you know, to that degree, I believe there is some truth to that. There, there's a, a situation where we do know that people are looking for the church to do more of right. that. Now, again, I, I believe that the church is only speaking from my position. You know, I, I see the church maybe sometimes more involved in things that I don't think they ought to be more involved in and, <laughs> and, and, you know, and should be more on the spiritual side of things. I think that there's so much needed that's in our community that people need now more than anything, something to believe in. And, and, and we want to make it so that everybody need to believe in these elected officials and folks like that. And, oh, you're so disappointed because they couldn't do something that you wanted them to do when they're just human, like everybody else. Right. And we should be maybe putting our faith more in something bigger and even ourselves right. to do better. And, and I think that the church is the, the meter for that. It's the person that's supposed to push that. And that's why I ask, do you guys think you lost the battle? Because I think you lost it in the fact that I don't see you out enough doing that. You know, I, 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 it's just not enough of that, man. Yeah, they'll go out and we'll do the things for the elected officials and that. But are you, what's the, you know, you guys still doing revivals? It used to be tense. Used to be up right. all the time in the summer where, you know, churches would be out doing church revivals and stuff where if you were in these communities where all of this stuff is going on, that everybody's so scared of these young kids and stuff. If you had a tent up, maybe they'll come. Right. You know, Right. maybe if, if they knew that you're going to have those disrespectful ones who's just disrespectful. But for the most part, man, it, everything is done by sight. You say you became right. a, a, a minister because that's what was going on. What was happening in your neighborhood is what you are. Right. So if you're in a neighborhood of drug dealers, you're going to be a drug dealer. Exactly right. Right. And, and you right. say, well, that's not, but we're not doing the churches are right in these neighborhoods, man. So right. that's my thing. So that's why I said, no, I, I agree. In the back. They have a responsibility but do to it? do it. Oh, do it. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely believe that Jesus said he came to preach the gospel to the poor and to take the, you know, to make sure he's taking care of the widows, those that heal the captives, those who are incarcerated. That's the ministry of Christ was absolutely social justice. That's where Martin Luther King gets that from. That's all biblical. And I think that when you get away from that is when you, and when you, and at the same time, we also have to preach evangelism. You know, Jesus was there with the, when he was, he went to a woman at the well 
Maybe preached about this Sunday, who was a Samaritan woman, as he reached out to her, even though she's outside his race. At the same time, he was healing woman who had a sickness of disease. I mean, so you have to we have to have healing as well as physical healing, as well as social healing. We have to have a spiritual healing. We have to we have it. We need it all. It's not a matter of one or the other. That's what people don't know about Martin Luther King. He, yeah, but I think they they gotta do one of them well, right? I think we, and, and if you're not doing one of them, well, they end up not doing none of it. We, we're just not getting enough of that, man. Do you think, uh, are you scared of the young folks in the community? I'm I ain't not, talking, I'm talking about, do you think you will pause about approaching these young dudes that are on the corners that are doing the stuff that they doing? I would say, I would say yes, but not because I'm af afraid of me, of my life, but I'm afraid of the approach. All right, that's and, and we have young people in our mm -hmm. church now that I say this to, you can't talk to young people the way that I was talked to. So I'm afraid that when I go and approach and talk to a young man, I'm going to talk to him the way my father talked to me. That doesn't work. And, and they don't understand. They're so sensitive. I have never seen, that's one of the problems with these young men. I mean, so I'm not afraid that they're there for my life, but they're so sensitive. So if you say a harsh word, even in, in love and correction, they, they're, they, they're going to get upset. They may pull a gun on you and you're just trying to tell them, man, you, you can't be messing with that old lady like that. You need to do, you know, there's a way to do wrong. You're not even doing wrong. Right. 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 So, you know, you can't, you can't just talk to old oh, geez, say the same thing when they, you can't talk to these young guys like you used to, because they're just sensitive. Different, they're different. You know, I have a theory about that and you may not like the, the people are going to like this, but my pro I think it's because they've been raised by women. They all have been raised by women. We have a generation of young men who were raised by women. So, so because of that, they have women tendencies. They're sensitive. So they're extra sensitive. So, you know, you can't, I have daughters. You cannot talk to a, you have a wife. You cannot talk hard to your wife. They're going to get all goofy and crazy and crying. You do that to these young boys and you're like, I'm, I'm just talking to you. You know, what do you mean? And if they're not in a sport, and are they in the military? They don't understand that. Man, my father talked to me all kind of crazy. You cannot do that with these young men today. And even these young ladies, they get some, we have a problem with taking when people go on these jobs and they're, they're talking to them crazy. The first thing they ready to quit because the supervisor talked to them sideways. Well, you're going to get talked to sideways. You're an employee mm -hmm. that's happened. So I think that's a, that's just a theory I have, but it is different. I tell people, you know, our parents probably said the same thing about us that we're different, but it is, it ain't the same. It's not, you know, they, they may say uh, our parents was not, our parents, they did what they had to do, but I'm not saying they were right. You know, I don't th think I deserve every whooping I got, but it's probably some whoopings I didn't get that absolutely, I deserve. Absolutely. I'll put it that way. Absolutely. You know what I mean? So I, that part of it got, we went from that to no punishment at all. That's what I'm saying. And when you get to a no punishment at all with no being no repercussions to anything that you do, then you get what you got. Mm -hmm. And I people now who, you know, who you, like you say, you say something to them, they're sensitive about that. And, and society made it so that if I'm very upset about it, I'm that way. Or, right. or, or it made it so that I could say whatever I want to say with no respect for who are. That's right. And so that makes it so that I don't think the question is if, Everybody's scared of them. I just, like you say, you just don't want to be bothered. And that's, and that's, and that's horrible. That's horrible. And, and I'm trying to be more patient and learn. So it is, it is, it's always, I'm, a, I have fear, but not that kind of fear where 
I'm afraid to approach them, but I know that I have to have different kind of language. I have to have a different kind of sensitivity. I got to change the tone of my voice because sometimes it's just the tone for them. Right. And, and so this is how I talk. So man, what I want to do is I'm going to give you the camera. This belongs to you. And you can look in that camera, man. You can tell everybody how to reach out to sure house, how, what the clergy corps, anything that you think is important that you want, take a moment to do that. All right. Well, I'm pastor Aaron Phillips, senior pastor of sure house Baptist church. We're located here in Cleveland, one thirteen eighteen miles Avenue. We have service every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. So the executive director of the Cleveland Clergy Coalition, where all the African-American clergy groups come together, do big things. One of the major things we're doing is taking people to work from the urban centers to the suburban manufacturing companies. You can reach out to us and we'll be able to get you that information. Call the 216-245-6545. Give us a call. Brother Shivers will answer that phone call. We'll make sure that we get you hooked up with that. We're just looking forward to continuing to bring our community together to make a difference and make a change here in Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, I want to thank you again for coming well, on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you, Ken. More than you know, more than I tell you. And you've been a huge help to me in my life personally and professionally. And thank God for you, brother. Oh, appreciate it. We'll see y'all next week. This is Strategic Moves with Ken Dow.